this week we'll talk about the last mile of data and we have a special guest today caitlin caitlin is the vp of data and business operations and throw recommends where she helps brands buy back and resell their products at scale previously she led data teams in uh, crowdfunding companies and in self-publishing she's also an admin and a co-founder of uh, amazing slack community locally optimistic and actually, there is a funny story. So when I just started Data Talks Club, one of the, of the few first members, uh, he was also on this podcast a while ago, Arpit, he asked me, hey, why did you create this community, your community, if there is all locally optimistic? I thought, locally what? <laughs> and then he basically invited me to locally optimistic. And then I found out about uh, this Slack community. So if you're into analytics and data things in general, so do check it out. Yeah, but who knows what would have happened if I knew about locally optimistic, but back then maybe we wouldn't be talking now. So yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I think the fact that there are multiple organic emergences of these communities really just speaks to like how much data practitioners really like need that community we're still figuring out so much uh and i you know i find the community to be so helpful yeah so welcome anyways <laughs> thank so, you yeah before we go into our main topic of conquering the last mile of data and we will talk what it actually means let's start with your background can you tell us um, in a few words about your career career journey so far yeah um so I started my career working for a small, very involved private equity firm, uh, which was a really good six-year mashup of kind of financial modeling skills. Like you might get an investment banking plus bouncing from project to project in the way you might in consulting. So I did everything from evaluated investments, designing incentive compensation plans, serving as like a temporary general manager for one of our companies. And so I spent a lot of time in that role making decisions based on data, but I actually did not even know where it came from. I would just email someone, describe what I need and then get a CSV back. So it was very black box. Um, and I was instead really focused on how to use that data to make decisions, to really spend a lot of my time analyzing it, framing trends, really understanding kind of where we should go from here and also the, the typical spending hours creating the perfect chart in PowerPoint. Um, so ultimately, for a lot of different reasons, I decided to leave private equity and settle into a single company. And um, to be honest, I wasn't super thoughtful about it, but I was really lucky and I ended up in an analyst role at a self-publishing company. So as a data team of two, I thought the role was going to be more like FP&A, kind of in my wheelhouse of using data, but but not creating it. Um, and then very quickly, it became a lot more technical. I went from like very nervously changing where clauses to, um, you know, trying to write PHP for a home-coded daily sales email. It was, uh, it escalated quickly. So um that was a really amazing experience. We, it was around the same time Redshift was emerging, but we were by no means on the cutting edge. Everything was kind of home baked and you know, we didn't have any of the, the user-friendly tools that we have today. So from there, I moved to the Bay area, started working for a company that was in the middle of the transition to a much more modern data stack. And that sort of began my love affair of, of with modern data tooling, enabling teams. Um, and so I ended up leading a team at that 
Bay Area startup, ultimately leaving to build out a team from scratch, uh, which has been a really fun experience. And I still really love the technical side. Um, it makes me really happy to just disappear for a few days and go, you know, write some code. But especially as my role has grown, I am keenly aware of that moment where data actually changes decisions. And I'm super focused on figuring out how we can get more effective at creating those moments, making sure the data is there, making sure that the right people are in the room, to some extent, actually thinking about whether it is the right answer, one very well-crafted PowerPoint slide, sometimes it is. Um, and kind of those challenges are something I am spending a ton of my time thinking about lately. So do you still use, uh, have to use PHP? No, no, <laughs> I don't, I, I don't know whether I ever was actually successful when I did need to use it, uh, but I spent a lot of my time beating my head against it. <laughs> but uh, you still, you, you're, you're saying, you were saying that you're still doing a bit of hands-on work, uh, hands-on work sometimes, a bit of coding, right? Yeah, um, much less so very recently, but I do still like to kind of get in there and dig around and I wish that I had more time for it now, but you know, that's the reality of kind of more strategic roles. So someday I think, I think the kind of cycle of my career is likely gonna be continuously going from creating a team from scratch to growing it and then realizing that I'm too far away from it and coming back. So I, I haven't reached that point yet, but someday I'm gonna boomerang back. Yeah, so you said that uh, you're really interested in uh, seeing or understanding how data uh, is used, can be used to change decisions, right? And this is what you're focusing on right now. And the topic today is conquering the last mile. And I think these two uh, things are related. So I wanted to ask you, so actually maybe a bit of a story. So when I reached out to you and invited to, to, to this uh, podcast to have an interview, you wrote me that uh, you've been thinking a lot about the last mile of data in, in data, right? And yeah, I thought, okay, what is the last mile? And then I started to, to look it up. I Googled it and then I checked. So what I want to ask you, so what is the last mile? So, and where does this analogy come from? And why do we uh, use this when we talk about data? Yeah, so the last mile, I think is sort of colloquially used to refer to the last stage of a process, whatever that is. Um, and it originally comes from delivering physical goods or, um, or services to their final customers. So, you know, getting a physical product into a store or a warehouse is, is a scale problem. So it's relatively straightforward to kind of design and implement solutions for problems where you're dealing with a lot of things moving all at once. Um, but then getting that product from the warehouse into your house, um, getting that pint of ice cream from the grocery store to me in under an hour when I order from Instacart, like that is the last mile. And that's where there's a massive amount of complexity when you think about it kind of operationally and in these classic um, sort of last mile challenges, it's often half or more of the cost of getting a product to you is really that last mile. So it's something where if you solve the big problems, you're, it feels like you're most of the way there, but really there's still a lot ahead of you. But if you don't solve that last mile, you never get the value out of the thing you're building. Um, so, you know, I started in data long enough ago that um, 
everything before the last mile used to be really hard. <laughs> um, that was, you know, it was really challenging to actually implement tools. It was really challenging to make changes to ETL. All of this was really difficult. Um, and so when you were in smaller companies, like you might not ever actually implement a lot of this stuff. You know, I was basically writing queries against a copy of the production database. And we, there was no data warehouse. There were no transformations. Just writing raw SQL queries every time. Like that was kind of the way that you would operate. And so, you know, if you think about this as the last mile analogy, that the era of that kind of data work was really like when you had to build the railroads, like it used to be really hard to get from the center of one city to the center of another city. You build some railroads and suddenly that is much easier. Um, and so as our tooling has gotten easier in data, it has become much, much, much and much more simple to just set up a pipeline that gets all your data into one place. You clean it up maybe with DBT or whatever transformation tool you use. You've got a beautiful warehouse. that's like pretty easy to use. Um, and that really kind of opened up the world of like, what can a data team do? And it made the, the challenges seem, um, you know, much, much more surmountable. Um, and really, you know, you, we kind of have this general theme in a lot of analytics communities that if you can empower a great analyst, you solve value delivery, you can get delivery to it. And yes, it has changed. Like the amount that one smart person can accomplish is crazy compared to what so it used to be. Because of this uh, modern data stack, right? So right? yeah, so yeah. other things that we didn't, you, you mentioned that in your uh, few roles back, you didn't have this, so you had to do a lot of uh, things, uh, you know, without really using these tools, uh, just trying things. So now you were saying there are railroads, so this modern data stack is, uh, are the railroads, right? Um, yeah, or, or, you know, the interstates, like w whatever the primary form of um, industrial transportation is in your particular locality. I'm in the US, it's all the interstates, but in many places it is railroads that are, you know, much more efficient and less, um, less environmentally damaging. So uh, we'll, we'll say that it's um, a really great, you know, rail system, something that gets, gets stuff to the warehouse, gets it to the middle of the city. Um, but you still see in like every organization that people are really frustrated that data isn't available or that the data team's work doesn't feel like it's impacting the business. And analysts are feeling like they're doing all this work that doesn't seem to be valued. And that's where we're seeing the pain of the last mile. So we're getting the data most of the way there, but we're still not really delivering. Um, and so, you know, when you think about, when you think about data problems, you can kind of separate out these scale problems. How do you get it in the warehouse? How do you transform it? How do you get to, you know, the most basic dashboard, get clearly defined metrics to a user. And then there's the last mile of that, which is how do you actually get a team to change what they're doing based on the data and enable them to make better decisions based on the data. And much like the last mile of delivery is all about how many different houses there are and navigating very different terrain because this one is uphill and this one is, you know, deep in the woods. It's, it's very similar because you just have so many different stakeholders, so many different ways of making decisions. The effort to 
understand that landscape and actually get plugged into it is really substantial. But if you aren't getting the data to the decision, then your team just isn't having the impact that you want them to have. Does it have uh, like this last mile, does it have anything to do with marathons? Because this is what I found. So when I was Googling, so as I said uh, a few minutes ago, that I was looking up and trying to understand what actually the last mile is. And I think sometimes I found um, something like uh, analogy with marathons, like the last mile when you run a marathon is the most difficult one because you're tired, but it's pretty close and you really have to force yourself to, you know, to actually run this last mile. So have you heard anything like that? Um, so I've never thought of that as sort of the source of this analogy, but like, I think it's very, it, it has a lot of parallels. It is, you get to the point where you're like, oh, well, I've done most of the work. You know, I ran, 25 miles, um, it's pretty close, right? Um, and the getting things across the line and really finishing them can be really challenging. It, it, it can feel much easier to start on the first mile of the next problem than to tie everything up with a neat little bow and make sure that people understand how to use your products and you know that people are really understand the data that they understand how to actually bring these two things together at the, the time of decision and learn from the data that you provided. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's this Pareto principle or 80-20 principle that says like uh, you get from 20% of the work, you get 80% of the results, right? And then the other way around, the, the remaining 20% takes 80% of the, of the effort, right? So would you say the last mile is this, uh, the remaining 20%? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think potentially it's similar, but I, I think it's really challenging to get value out of data at all if you don't really understand how to connect it to decisions. And that might look really different in a lot of organizations. So, you know, there are a lot of organizations where users are really savvy and they understand the data and really all they need is access. And then, you know, you create, you know, a really solid data set or a really useful dashboard and people are good and they're going to use the data and they're going to get it into the meetings. They're going to make decisions based on it. And that is really kind of all you need to do. And then there are organizations where for whatever reason, incentives to not look at the data or just a lack of comfort with it or um, not fully understanding it. There are lots of reasons where people don't make that last leap. And so there, it's not really helpful at all to put the data out there if people aren't going to use it. Mm -hmm. So I tend to think of 80-20 more as, um, you know, sort of the figuring out how to tackle particular problems. So for example, if what you're trying to do is optimize marketing spend, you're going to get 80% of the effort out of 20% of the, or 80% of the value out of 20% of the effort in the sense that like you can answer all kinds of questions. You can dig really, really, really deep. And what you need to do is find those high leverage questions where once you answer them, you get the value. Um, but even within that, you still have to make sure that the stakeholders, the operators who are really taking action fully understand how to use it, that you understand how their decision-making process works, that you enable the data to be in the room at the right time, whether that's by 
a data person being in the room or making sure that the team really understands the tools they have, or, you know, there's sort of lots of different ways that this might take shape, but that ultimately, if you're not at that point of decision, if you're not really well plugged into how operators are using the data, then you, you can't even get that first 80% of the value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So this is like binary, like you did all the work and then there is last mile and like with marathon, if you don't run the last mile, you haven't finished the marathon, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you need to make sure that people, the decision makers use your dashboard to make decisions or use your machine learning models to affect the customer or whatever, whatever data product uh, you have. Right. So you need to make sure that, uh, Decisions are made based on this, or else all the effort is uh, in vain, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, when preparing for this, I read a few articles, and one of them uh, was saying that, uh, and yeah, what what we are talking about here is more like uh, we have some data, but we we are failing to use it, and this is the problem, the the last mile problem that we need to solve, right? So we make all this work. So how can we now use this? And the article was saying that fundamentally failing to use data isn't a technological problem, but it's a social problem. And I think you mentioned that. So right now we have all this modern data stack uh, tools, right? That make it easier for us. Like we have these railroads that connect uh, to cities, right? So now technologically it's easier. But uh, so this article is saying that, and it's saying that it's a social problem. So why do you think it's the case? I mean, I think your data products are are fundamentally products. So if you want someone to use a product, what they get out of it, their benefit has to be greater than what it costs them, how hard it is to use, whether that's monetary cost, time cost, thing, any of that. And so there can be a lot of different factors that contribute to that equation being off. So either the benefit is too low, the cost is too high. And most of the sources of that, those issues are really social problems. Like it's about how people think about this or how they use it, not whether the data is available. So there's kind of two ways to make that work out. You either have to make the benefit bigger or make the cost smaller. Um, I think of the major driver of the benefits of good data-driven decision-making being um, cultural. Like you have to have a culture of measuring people's results and rewarding them. Um, Your better decision has to matter. And so if you're in a situation where your budget next year is going to be based on how big your budget was this year and how much of it you spent, then you should just spend your budget, (laughs) period. Um, What you're actually doing with it doesn't matter that much. If your manager just gives you a list of things to do and you're rewarded by just doing them, then just do them. Shift the feature, run the campaign, check the box. And on the other hand, if you have a really clear target that's driven by metrics, so you're really focused on improving conversion, acquiring new users, um, you start to actually care about which activities are highest leverage and how to get back to the Pareto principle, like how to drive 80% of the results with 20% of the effort. And the only way you can understand that is if you start to really dig into the data and understand 
how you are, how your various campaigns are performing, how various parts of the conversion funnel are behaving. And so if you don't have those incentives, then you just, there's not a lot of benefit from using data and why bother? And then on the other side of the equation, you have to keep the costs low. So you have to know how to find the data. You have to know how to use the tools. You have to know how to interpret the data. You have to have trust in it and not constantly be concerned about data discrepancies. Is this real? Is this true? Hopefully you don't rely on an analyst for every question you ask. And because all of those just add cost to the process. And so you, by sort of getting the balance right, then you get to a place where people use the data. They bring it into the decision-making process. They're, you know, really using it for prioritization. They're maybe this is sort of one path to building a culture of experimentation where people really want to test things and understand how they performed and make better choices next time. And all of that kind of healthy data culture comes from the incentives and the skills and, and training, both of which are really kind of people problems. Okay, so we need to have a healthy data culture, and I think you mentioned that for that data should be must be discoverable, so people know how to find it. Then it must be interpretable; people need to know how to interpret the data. And then finally, it has to be trust uh, trust uh, like people need to to be able to trust the data because if they uh, see that something is off, they okay, I don't want to base my decision on this dashboard. I better you know just do some base my decision on my gut feeling because I don't trust this dashboard, right? And then, uh, so you have to have all this, right? And then you also said that uh, everything should be measurable and people should be able to see the impact of their work uh, as a number, right? And then when we have that, then it's possible to, like, then uh, our data products make sense. Then we can use them. Then we can um, show people that it's actually better to use our data product to make decisions because look if you do this your number improves right and uh, this is not a technological problem is it right yeah absolutely sort of you have to have the baseline obviously the the technical side of it is kind of table stakes but this is where you get into sort of the last mile it, the last mile is all kind of the people part it's making sure that people know how that the incentives are aligned correctly for it. And that, you know, to the extent necessary, you might have to actually sit in the room with them and sort of help them understand how, how do I understand this campaign data? How do I tell which ones are performing? How do I tell what happens if I put more money behind the same campaign? Does it still, you know, am I getting the same impact from the next dollar as I did from the last dollar? Like, there are real questions people don't understand and the barriers are not because are often not because the data is not available. Um, it's often, you know, kind of handholding and, and training and understanding. So is there any other way? So let's say we have everything measurable and we have an analyst who can uh, sit with the decision maker and explain everything. Is it enough to actually make sure that the data is uh, used? Or... I think it depends. I mean, you, you have to really, it takes a lot of work to understand why the data isn't being used. If the data doesn't exist, then it's not a lot of work to understand kind of like, what do we need? What's the path to fix this? Like, you know, I have to bring it into the data warehouse. I have to make it, I have to clean it up, make it useful. Got to, you know, create some reporting on top of it and voila. Once you've got that, if it's not 
getting used, there are lots of different things that might be going wrong. And you really have to spend some time understanding um, what are those barriers and, and what does that look like? And so in a lot of ways, it looks more like user research. Like you built a product, you put it out there and people aren't using it the way that you thought it would, thought they would. So what's the, what's the barrier? Do they know that it exists? Do they know how to use it? Does it solve the problem they actually have? Um, really kind of interrogating and, and understanding where the gaps are is the key to being able to fix those gaps. Because obviously if people just don't know about it, that's relatively easy to solve. If it fundamentally doesn't answer the question they're asking, then that can be a little more challenging to, to solve and it really requires, you know, another round of work and understanding what are you really trying to do with this data. And if it's difficult to use, uh, you either solve it by educating or just simplifying? Yeah, I mean, hopefully a little bit of both. If it's, if it's, it's all about kind of, you know, creating the right balance of what's possible in your tools, what's, how much you think people are really going to kind of learn and, and work around. So if, if it's just not knowing how it works, then it's just teaching them. If it's that it's really hard, then you might have to really think about how much can I simplify this? Do I need to take a different approach? Is there kind of a totally different way to get to the same result that would be more user-friendly? Yeah. So I'm thinking about an example we have at Oelix. Um, so we do a lot of experiments and usual A-B tests, right? And uh, let's say we have uh, some traffic of users coming in. So for some users, we show one variant. For some of other users, we show a different variant. And then we compare different metrics and uh, seeing if, uh, let's say, the, the new feature gets uplift in some metric, right? Um, yeah, the usual A-B tests. Then I think the problem we had at some point was that uh, the people who are looking at this uh, we were showing them too many statistical stuff, like, you know, p-values, uh, you know, power, test power, like all these statistical thing, and then they were just overwhelmed, like, what does this all mean, like, all this confidence interval, all these p-values, so, and, uh, yeah, it required a lot of iterations, actually, to first teach them, and then think, what can we not show them, like, do we really need to show all that to them, or... Like, do they really need to know about the p-values, right? What and what this p-value mean? Um, or maybe we just show, you know, that okay, this is significant and that's uh, that's it, right? So uh, I guess this is quite in line to what you're saying, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's very similar, and even uh, so, I've been in similar A/B testing situations before and even within your users I bet there's a variation of sort of how much people are willing to learn or interested to learn and so it's all about figuring out you know who are you optimizing for how do you trade off between simplicity and sort of you know functionality and so we did the same thing and so for us that looked like setting a default p-value for significance, but also allowing people to change it if that was something they were comfortable with, understood, all of that. And so the, the experiment was communicated in terms of like significant, not significant. Here's kind of how you interpret it. But we had enough toggles for people who we had a couple of power users to go in and say, actually, in this situation, I'm good with 
this level versus this level. And, you know, this is how we want to, in, to measure this test in particular. Um, but it's, it's really hard to get the right balance and to make it feel really useful to people when you have such a deep knowledge of the data and the space, you can often think, oh, well, I can look at this and the depth of understanding I get is really rich, but often business users just really want a simple, super easy to interpret result. Yeah, that's, uh, if you let data scientists build a tool, then they will show like all this, you know, this is man Whitney test, this is the power of the test, this is the p-value, this is the confidence interval, all these technical things. Or like if you talk about machine learning, then, you know, this, this accuracy and uh, precision recall, RUC curve, AUC, and things like this. And uh, if you show this to business and then, okay, what is that? Like, how much money is this thing actually yeah. going to make? Like, why are you showing me all that? Right. Uh, and uh, I guess this is what uh, ultimately matters for, for them. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. So, and then uh, like bridging this gap is more like, uh, uh, it's not a technological problem. It's more like uh, a social problem. Like how do you actually communicate this? Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's a lot like building any technical product, right? Like I think a lot about Zapier as a really good example of this. Like Zapier exists to take something that is technical and make it non-technical mm -hmm. and to allow people to, you know, leverage APIs to accomplish automation without knowing what an API is. And it's really hard to get the right level of abstraction when you start to talk about something like that. Like it's, it's really difficult to build the thing that's gonna let someone who's comfortable, you know, parsing out text and doing like a bunch of sort of interim steps versus the person who just like, when I get an email, can you just send me a Slack also? Like I just, want it to be exactly the same and it's, it's I mean it really is it's a lot like product design and there's the challenge is that your data team is really small compared to your product team most likely and so you have to learn to you know find the right points of leverage and find enablers and you know train power users and have them train their teams and you know find all of these ways to scale um the work that you have to do because you don't have a whole team dedicated to, you know, doing a lot of research and spending a ton of time on design. It's sort of a scaled down version, but ultimately kind of the same problem. Yeah. And you wouldn't believe, but I actually read another article. So I think I read three in total. So I think I told you the first one was about, you know, comparing it with Marathon. Then the second one was talking about a social versus technological problem. And then the third one was uh, saying that uh, you should prioritize the last mail of the analytical journey and work backwards. Uh, this is like a, probably uh, quite a long sentence. Uh, there are many things to unpack here. Um, so they were saying they prioritize the last mile and work backwards. Do you know what they mean here? So why do we prioritize it and how do we work backwards from, from that? Yeah, I mean, I I interpret that as really focusing first on what success looks like for the thing that you're building. So, you know, for 
different types of projects, that's going to be very different for your A-B testing um, results dashboard or, or tool. What you want is for a product manager to be able to make the right decision on whether to roll out a feature or not. Um, and there are sort of other goals around that. You want to make sure that they wait long enough to get meaningful results. So you want to make sure that, you know, they are running a, a, an experiment in a responsible way. There's kind of some subsidiary goals there, but what you're really focusing on is I want a project manager, a product manager to be able to come here, look at their experiment and understand whether it worked um, or potentially what the business impact was. Like maybe you actually need to convert it into dollars. Um, Focusing there helps you really understand what you're going to need to build. If you need to communicate it in dollars, then you need to start thinking from the beginning of sort of how you're going to build toward that. So instead of immediately thinking, I need an A-B testing dashboard, I need to start thinking about what our event data looks like, you're thinking about the user first. And that's going to change how you think about the data sources, the transformation jobs, what else you need to join in, um, how you want to build the dashboard, you're really starting with kind of that decision you're trying to drive. So this is, uh, I think at Amazon, they have this principle like working backwards and they have the, I'm not sure if it's Amazon or something else, but I hear this concept of, um, so let's say you're working on some product, it can be a feature, it doesn't have to be a data product, and then the first thing you do is you write an announcement. Like you write a blog post that you would publish when the feature is done. And you write like uh, this blog post, like a couple of pages and you have that. And then you work backwards from that, from this announcement, like as if this feature already existed, as if you already did it. And now you think, okay, what I need to do to actually build this feature. And what are you saying as I understood? So think of the end user. So in case of uh, a data product, let's say of AB testing system, it could be a product manager who's uh, uh, who will need to make a decision based on what you show, right? So they will need to understand if the feature we're testing is making impact and what is this impact, like how much better this thing is than the current uh, thing, right? So we think about this and uh, we, I guess we can start involving the user, the product manager, immediately before even building this thing, right? Okay, what kind of things you need? Like, what are the problems you have? How can we solve your problem, right? And if we involve them, then, um, you know, it makes it easier for us to, to build this thing because, um, yeah, because we're already thinking about the end user. And uh, so the last mile here, as you said, is making sure that the data is used, right? Or the product is used. And if we involve the end user, if we think about the end user from the very beginning, then it makes it easier, right? Did I yeah. interpret this correctly? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And it's it's talking to the users. It's, you know, we're talking a lot about sort of how data drives a decision. It's literally sitting in the meetings where those decisions are made right now and understanding what that process looks like. And maybe, you know, for this A-B testing example, maybe the decision consistently looks like I have to share the results of my test against my 
ideal, my, my intended impact metric. And then I also have to share these other two to make sure that we're not adversely affecting something else too much. And that's the kind of insight where if you understand this is what the product team really needs to make the right decision, you build from that as well. And, and sitting in the meetings where these decisions are being made, talking to the people who are making them, um, I love pen and paper. I spend a lot of time sketching things out and saying like, okay, if it looks like this, what does that tell you? What's missing? How, like, what is the deck you're building look like? What is the deliverable you're creating look like? Does this dashboard get you there? Does this tool get you there? Like really getting hands-on. And um, I, I love the writing the press release first. It's very similar. It's like, what, what do people say about the thing that you build? And this uh, sketching is like prototyping, basically. How would uh, this look like at the end? And then you show it to the decision maker, whoever the end user is, like uh, just using like a piece of paper. And is this, does this look like what you have in your head? And then they say, okay, you know what? Actually, it looks completely different. And you start talking, right? And then uh, they say, okay, like I want this thing here, right? And then this thing is not what you understood initially but it's a different one. And then you start talking about this, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that conversation's easier to have if they don't think that you put a lot of time and effort into it. Not that you didn't put enough thought into it, but like, I just sketched this out really quick. So like, feel free to speak up if it doesn't mm -hmm. speak to you versus I created this really robust prototype in Figma and it's really beautiful. And you're going to be like calling my baby ugly. If you tell me that this thing doesn't work for you. It, it's it's a lot easier to get real feedback if the bar is relatively low. <laughs> so, or I don't know, maybe these days it's not so easy, uh, but using a whiteboard, right? So just yeah. uh, getting around the whiteboard and then starting, okay, let's go to this whiteboard. Let's start, uh, you know, drawing there. And uh, then you get a lot of feedback, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we have a few questions. So, um Maybe we can start covering these questions. So a question yeah, from sure. Aidin. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. So when data challenge the traditional decision system, how can we show the benefits of the power data? Do you have some experience on this issue? Yeah, I mean, I, I think ideally, again, this comes back to like making sure the right incentives exist in the organization. But ideally, you want people to be really incented by good results. And so then what you need to do is show better results. And so, you know, you're thinking about the marketing team and helping them make better choices. Well, the results of that are, we spent the same amount this month as last month, but we acquired 30% more users. Usually the results are not that clear. Um, obviously, if you have a culture of A-B testing and the tools for A-B testing, that's an amazing place to start to be really confident in your results. But a lot of times this is really more anecdotal and you might not have the way sort of super robust ways to report on results, but creating those moments of um, comparison are still really helpful. Would you say it's a must that we have everything measurable or we can already start uh convincing people to use our data product when not everything is measurable yet? I mean, and nothing is, you're never at the point where everything is measurable. So the, the as close as you can get is what you need. And so, um, you know, 
I, for example, I work in an environment where we've got a warehouse through which some activities are like basically invisible in our data. They're fully manual. It's, you can't effectively measure how long this process took or anything else. But a lot of times when we make changes to process or make changes to um, to our tools, like we literally just spend a couple hours doing a time study and someone sits with a stopwatch and times people and says, did this take more or less time? Is that precise? No. Is that a, a sort of a real experiment? No, but it's better than nothing. And if you are talking about sufficiently large changes, then it's, it's compelling. You can tell I cut this time in half. Um, that must be real versus, you know, it's, it's indistinguishable. And so we should go with the process that's more scalable or the process that's better for some other reason and start to make decisions from there. Yeah, that's interesting. I was also thinking about that, uh, you know, if you work in e-commerce, uh, at least uh, if we're talking about a website only, then all these clicks, they're relatively easy to measure, right? I mean, capture, track them, and then uh, put them somewhere in your data warehouse and then have all these dashboards. But if we talk about... Um, some uh, I don't know, like a manufacturing line somewhere, um, or a warehouse where the actual people move things, like not robots, but the actual people. Then it becomes tricky, right? And then it's uh, you cannot put uh, you know trackers to people and watch how they move because uh, a they will not like it, and then b <laughs> it's probably not uh, cheap, right? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it can be, it can be really hard, but it's, I really love a good proxy metric. Like what's the closest we can get to measuring this thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, I think, I always think anything related to employees is a great example of this. Like we're never going to have a large enough sample of employees that we're running AB tests on like employee engagement, but like, we're going to throw a survey out there and see how people feel. And, you know, Ultimately, you kind of make your best decision, but there are, in most businesses, a ton of parts of the business that are really easy to measure. And I think that's a really good place to start for kind of these cultural changes where it's, you want people to use data, start with the data you have. And then you'll get to a point where you're starting to talk about how do we optimize these less visible parts of the process. And then hopefully you've got sort of the trust from everybody and you've got enough sort of culture of data-oriented thinking that you can start to find ways to feel good about those areas as well. So probably marketing is a good um, good start uh, in many cases because you basically have some sort of web page and then you can play with, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, different uh, wording there or different positional things, uh, even that you can already start measuring this and then showing that, okay, you can measure this and then people see that this is useful to have things like this. And then you start, uh, like you use this as convincing uh, argument. And then yeah. people start believing you and then you take care of more complex things, right? Yeah, yeah. I I think Emily Sherio oh, does a really good job talking about how to, when you're trying to drive change with data, how to focus on as narrow a slice as possible. And I'll have to dig up. I actually am not sure where she wrote this, but um, I'm going to credit it to her. But as you think about how much you can scope down your work, like 
you want to really focus on, I want to enable this salesperson to make this better decision based on the data. And so I'm going to focus entirely on that until that end is accomplished. And that means all the infrastructure work necessary, all of the transformation work, like whatever it takes to get there. But when you narrow in, then you've got a really clear success story. You've got an advocate in that stakeholder. You've got everything that you need to start to build the case for a bigger role for data in general. And you move on to the next team and you say, okay, how can I help marketing address this decision? And how can I help product address this decision? And uh, I didn't hear the last name, Emily. Uh, what's the last name? Oh, Emily Sherio. It's, mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll have to see link. Yeah. Okay, I'll put this in the in this description. Then we have a question from Kurt. Uh, so Kurt is asking, you have emphasized asking high leverage questions. Do you have any tips on finding these points uh, as both an analyst and executive? So part of this is having enough bandwidth for analysts to kind of do a little digging and, and understand this themselves. If the business isn't looking at data, um, then you probably don't off the top of your head know the highest points of leverage. But if you spend a little time in the data, I think you'll, you'll start to understand that. And often the best place to start is actually not with the data in your data warehouse, but with your financials and sitting with someone from your accounting and finance team to understand like, what does our performance look like? What, what's our biggest cost center? Where are we spending money? Wherever you're spending money is a really good place to bring the data to understand how you can do that more effectively, more efficiently, either spend less or get more for what you're spending. And um, that has consistently been kind of a good approach for me to, to identify those points of leverage. And once you, you don't have to solve the biggest problem first, Sometimes the biggest problem is really hard, but you have to solve a big enough problem that people care about it. And so you kind of find that sweet spot between, you know, we spend X dollars a month on marketing. And so I want to focus on improving the efficiency of our marketing spend, even though we spend 10 X on our warehouse employees, but we don't know what they're doing. So I'm not ready to tackle that problem yet. <laughs> I also imagine that uh, you can get some resistance. So let's say you're starting with financials, you're identifying the biggest cost center. This is very house. And then uh, you go to the very house manager and they are like, and you're saying, hey, how about using data? And they are like, uh, how about no? Uh, like, <laughs> I imagine that uh, this can happen, right? Uh, uh, so what would you do in this case if there is some resistance from people, they are not really eager to use the data? So I think there's two separate answers. If I am independently trying to, to push this project and push this cultural change, I would not start with that warehouse manager. Like I, I want my first project to be with someone who is bought in with me and I'd rather work on something smaller or something harder and have someone who's in the boat rowing in the same direction with me than try to convince the primary stakeholder that this is a good idea. Um, you want to find someone who will be your advocate, someone who really wants this. And in most organizations, you're going to be able to find one person who 
really wants more data and wants to make decisions with that data. So if it's totally up to me, I just say, okay, cool. Thank you. I am excited to talk more about this in the future. And we come back when there's, you know, much more of a snowball of a more healthy data culture coming and they're more likely to buy in. If this has to be the first area, then I assume that is coming from someone else. Um, you, you know, if a COO hands this off to you and says, work with this person in the warehouse and figure it out, then you have to be a lot more delicate around kind of how to get that person on board and how to convince them of the value of it. And so I would say generally always focus on upside, not savings. Like don't talk about how we could, you know, ultimately need half as many people in the warehouse. Um, and that's why we should do this. Talk about, how, you know, talk to them enough to understand what they're not doing that they wish they could do. And then you can start to talk about it to say like, well, if we were more efficient, in this part of the process, then you would have enough people to do this other thing that you want to do, or, um, you know, find ways that driving better performance really benefits that person instead of potentially feeling like it's, you know, coming, um, something's being taken away from them. I think that's usually sort of the most impactful part of getting somebody in the boat, but yeah, just really sell on the benefits and find something find something that bothers them that you can help with and start to kind of build that rapport and that trust. And honestly, in data roles, this is almost always manual Excel processes. Find what they do in Excel and find a way to make that better, even if it has nothing to do with the project you're working on. <laughs> and start to make them your advocate, start to make them appreciate you. Oh, you're muted, Alexi. Oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> so, and uh, I was saying that uh, I guess if you're looking for a, a long hanging fruit, uh, this could be a marketing department. I think marketers have um, uh, by now realized the importance of uh, using data for making decisions, like what, which channel is more effective, right? So, the, like, where should I put more money? And uh, they are probably, um, they will be more welcoming, uh, like, uh, you, your work, uh, and uh, using data, probably they are using some data already, but uh, they will be happy to use more data. Yeah. And growth marketing, especially. Uh, I think I took a course in growth marketing and I was surprised uh, by how much stats was there. Like uh, it's about all about A-B testing and then uh, tracking uh, data. And uh, like, it's basically like, I don't know, some data analyst plus uh, marketing sort of position. So, yeah, I was surprised by that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, another question. What kind of questions do you ask domain experts to understand their domain? And can you recommend some good li literature on that? Oh, that's a really big question. I think it depends a lot on the sort of domain and the, the person that you're talking to. But, I mean, I think coming to any conversation with just a really genuine curiosity can get you a really long way. And so framing questions from genuine curiosity can make all the difference when you say something as open-ended as like, so what do you do here? Like that can be a really curious question or that can be a really judgmental question. And you have to make sure that you're genuinely coming from a place of wanting to understand and wanting to um, 
you know, really get a grasp on what they do and what's hard for them and what are the challenges that the team overall is facing and um, just building rapport. And so, you know, that will depend a lot on how much you know about the person and the organization and how embedded you are. And sometimes it really just starts with like, not talking about what they do at all and getting to know them as a person and, you know, building the relationship before you start to build the work relationship. But um, just coming from a real open-minded place of wanting to understand what they do is the biggest part. And just, you know, ideally after you understand what they do, you could document their job for them and just ask all the questions you would want to know to write like the handbook to this person's job, but certainly don't frame it that way to them. Cause that sounds a little bit, a little bit scary and a little bit like maybe you're trying to <laughs> onboard the next person. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, so you, you have to be quite good at uh, understanding people, right? Uh, and how you approach them and what, even in what tone you ask a question, because if you ask a question, like, what do you do here? It can sound curious or it can sound judgmental, right? So then you, you really have to, you know, be careful. Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't, I certainly don't want to frame that in, in a way that intimidates anyone. I've worked with a lot of data teams and, um, we definitely over-index on introverts. I am a strong introvert and I wouldn't necessarily say that early in my career, I felt super confident about my social skills and my, um, I was not a person that someone would say, oh yeah, great um, EQ, like very high emotional awareness. Um, That's something that I've had to build over time. But I think if you just genuinely really focus on like the curiosity side of it, it, it'll work out. Maybe... I wouldn't worry too much about the missteps, but, um, but frame even for yourself, your questions as wanting to understand and not immediately as wanting to make better. And I think that makes all the difference in kind of the way that you approach the situation. Okay. So recommended literature would be some, some books about the emotional intelligence. Yeah, maybe. Or, you know, I think it also depends on kind of the area. If you're working on something super specific and, you know, if, if you're working with digital marketers, then like read a book on digital marketing. Um, if what you're trying to understand more generally is like, how do I influence without authority? Then, um, there are some really good books around how to, you know, there's like Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's, it's the classic, but there are others if that's not your um, particular cup of tea, but finding books that are more focused on just how do you build rapport with people? How do you, you know, really kind of build those soft skills might make you feel more comfortable as well. Yeah, I actually tried reading this at some point. Uh, yeah, it was difficult for me like this. <laughs> yeah i've actually never finished it either i don't i don't love it but it is it is the classic and people who have read it generally speak very highly of it so um i don't know it's like uh, this uh, book getting things done some people love it some people hate it yeah yeah it's like uh, it's always binary it's never in between okay maybe so we have a last question and we still have a couple of minutes so a question from Aileen is uh, sometimes data projects can't uh, give expected results and this is normal, um, but this is creating trust problems in data projects. So what do you think about this and how do you approach it? Uh, would you approach it in such a way that uh, you know it doesn't create trust problems? 
Yeah. So I actually wrote two blog posts with um, Alexis Johnson Gresham, and I, I can share links to those about this exact problem because I think it's it's really difficult. And so what Alexis at first shared this phrase with me that was like really a light bulb moment around linear projects versus circular projects. And so even within data, you have both of them. There are linear projects where you can chart out the next step. You have a high level of certainty that if you do step one, you can do step two. After you do step two, you can do step three. And then there are circular projects where you don't know what you don't know. And a lot of data projects fall into this category. So something like, you know, building a a data pipeline to bring something in to the, the warehouse, like that's probably pretty linear. You know, there is an API, might not have all the data I want in it, but you can look at the docs pretty quickly and understand that. A circular project is one where until you know what's in there, you don't know if you're going to be able to do it. And so a lot of data science projects fall into this until I test it. I don't know how good my results are going to be. And a lot of analysis projects are like this because it's like, I want to answer the question, why was conversion up last month? I have no idea if I actually have the data to answer that. And I won't know until I dig into it really quickly, really um, substantially. And so um, I'll share more about this, but sort of the very high level overview is first just to set expectations, like acknowledge ahead of time that it is a circular project. And you don't know if it's going to be successful. You lose a lot of trust by saying you can definitely do something and then not delivering. But people understand if you say, I'm not sure if this is possible, I need to dig into it. Break it down into as small parts, as, as small pieces as possible so that you can quickly make progress and report back and say, I've gotten this far, looks good so far. Next stumbling block is this. Or I spent two days on it. It's actually, I, don't, I think it's gonna be really hard for this, this, and this reason. Here's kind of alternatives, things we could do to make it less difficult or more possible. Um, and really lean into uh, just that communication and alternatives and here's what we can do rather than here's what we can't do um, or here's what we learned. And hopefully you then start to also build a culture of like failure is learning and let's let's talk about it. Let's be really excited that now we know this thing is um, not possible with the data we have. And at the minimum, like we don't ever have to think about that problem until something dramatically changes. We don't have to put resources against this again. It's not, it's not on the backlog anymore. We've checked whether it's going to work and it's not. Um, so finding, finding some ways to kind of celebrate the learning. Okay. Do you have a couple of more minutes? There is one more question that popped up uh, and it's, yeah. really, it's really interesting. So, uh, Kurt is asking, so he, he's saying, I'm currently a data analyst student. Do you have any recommendations or resources or habits that helped you achieve success in your career? Um, yeah, getting getting started in data is really interesting because um, it's, it's just, it's really hard outside of a data role to even remotely approximate what it's going to be like, like public data sources are completely different than the data you're going to run into in a company. And so, you know, my biggest advice is just to, to be really curious and to think a lot about why things matter. And so like the logistics of being a data analyst, you can learn on the job, no problem. Like you'll learn how to write queries. You'll learn how to kind of approach problems, but building that curiosity and that sense of impact and 
tying results back to the business is often the hardest part. And so sometimes that looks like, you know, taking more business classes or taking the time to kind of understand the scale of impact that you can get from a data source in whatever project you're working on. If you're in an econometrics class, like do all of your analysis and then understand like, what would this mean if this were true holistically, if this policy went out, like what, what would the, the real impact of that be? And how do you kind of think about that versus other options? And that skill is hands down the most useful skill uh, for a data analyst to have. So more like business skills, business acumen, and this like understanding how business works versus just, you know, being really good at SQL, being really good at uh, uh, other things that analysts do. Technically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the technical skills are useful, but also are not nearly as sort of hard to teach. And so most good analytics leaders know if I find someone who is really smart and understands the importance of the data, I'm going to be able to teach them SQL, whereas the reverse might not always be true. Okay. So where can people find you? Locally optimistic? Right? Locally optimistic. I should really join um, your Slack as well. I was thinking about that earlier this week. Um, so I can, I will join today and I'll be there if there's a particular channel that you tend to chat with people in, but I'm also always in locally optimistic. Um, I'm happy to chat there. In your blog post, did you draw your pictures yourself? Like on no, we, we have an amazing illustrator, um, okay. who does all of our blog posts. It's like my favorite thing about the blog. <laughs> Yeah, the, the illustrations are amazing. Because you were saying that uh, at some point you would just uh, take a piece of paper and start sketching. And then I thought maybe it, it is actually you who create all these illustrations. No. Sadly, I am not quite that artistically talented. My, my sketches really encourage people to say that's not quite right. <laughs> <laughs> See. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for sharing your experience. Uh, thanks for answering questions. And also thank you everyone for joining us and for asking questions. And uh, yeah, take, thank you, Caitlin. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Yes, thanks. Uh, have a great rest of your day and have a you great too. weekend. You too, awesome.